this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage... All the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Literary Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and today we have a really special guest to talk about a really great book. Um, we have Gertian van der Hayden. Um, hello, Gertian. Hello. Thank you for having me. Super excited to have you on the show today. Um, and we are going to be talking about your new book out from the State University of New York Press. Um, it's called The Voice of Misery, A Continental Philosophy of Testimony. Um, this was a really great read. It talked about a lot of stuff that, you know, I want to talk about. So part of me is kind of like mad that you wrote it, uh, but it, it was really good. Um, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. Um, so before we get into the book, um, can you talk a little bit about your origins and your intellectual um, background, as well as how you came to writing this book? Yes, of course. Uh, so um, um, I teach in uh, in the Netherlands. I'm uh, part of uh, a philosophy department. Um, officially, my my teaching task is metaphysics, but uh, but in the Netherlands, that uh, that can also mean uh, continental philosophy. That's basically my specialization. And um, uh, I did a PhD in um, in philosophy on Heidegger, Derrida, and uh, Ricoeur. Um, it started out as a, as, a, as a comparison of Derrida and Ricoeur, eh? hermeneutics versus deconstruction. But then I went into uh, to, into Heidegger to see how both of these authors, Derrida and Ricoeur, did something with uh, with Heidegger. And in that uh, in that PhD thesis, which was already on language, I think I developed my first interest also um, in the themes that I develop in uh, in the Voice of Misery. And so the idea that that language somehow can open up reality to us, so that language is not only about uh, truth or falsity, but that with language, uh, all kinds of new things of reality are brought into play, become visible in a particular way, and what Heidegger calls disclosure, let's say. Um, and that is that is an important um, important theme, I think, for everything I do in uh, in philosophy. That is perhaps my main my main interest, uh, and then I think already a bit after only a few years after um, uh, I finished completed my PhD uh, thesis, I started working on the, the the topic of this book, and I think that the, the topic of the book is is testimony, but I don't come from it from a, um, a particular philosophical angle in the first place. So usually, if you look if you start googling. And you look for testimony and philosophy, you will find all kinds of epistemological accounts. My first encounter with the problem of testimony was through literature, and uh, so so I started um, uh, reading a couple of books. There was a, a book in um, uh, in in Dutch, uh, I, which is now also translated in in English, while the gods were sleeping, which was very important for me because it was a, a book on the First World War. 
um, but it was it's it's literary fiction. So it's not genuine testimony in the normal sense of the of the word, but it's a fictional testimony, and that re- raises all kinds of interesting questions. Is something like a fictional testimony is it possible? Uh, because usually you expect from a witness that they have a real experience of reality. So what happens if you make fiction out of it? Um, and so it's that type of questions that that brought me to uh, to the book, and then I started exploring all kinds of uh, philosophers because I noted that there was a lot of resonance with what authors like Heidegger, Lyotard, Derrida, Agamben, so let's say the whole the whole bunch in continental philosophy um, are doing. Um, and I thought, well, let's start reading those authors with with the with a particular focus on the question of testimony. And what do we get out of it? And then, then you get the book <laughs> that, uh, that, that you find uh, uh, in front of yourself. So, so the, uh, you see also, uh, so you see a little bit of, the, uh, of how I conceived of this book, um, how that uh, chronologically went. You see it also in the, the division. So the first part is really about literature because that was the, fo- the first source of inspiration for me to turn to, the, to this question. And then you see that in the second and third part, I really start engaging in in more philosophical uh, debates. It becomes a bit more technical at points uh, to try to flesh out what testimony is and and what we want to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we can dive right in. Um, So my first question would be, can you give, um, I don't know, it's not, it's not a layman's uh, definition, um, but can you give maybe an overall definition of what you mean by testimony um, and you have, we'll go into this more in a second, um, the four basic elements. But um, when you say testimony, what should we be thinking of? Well, um, I think that the testimony, you, you can approach testimony in a very general sense. Um, uh, and, and this is what you, what you see uh, when you look at uh, uh, the available literature in philosophy. A lot of the, uh, the theories on testimony are dealing with epistemology, and then testimony is just very basically a report about something. But I think that that approach to testimony is too weak in a certain sense, um, because I think that when we use the term testimony or when we use the term bearing witness, we mean something more than that. We mean something that we profoundly experience. That is when we start talking about testimony and we start talking about uh, bearing witness. It's not just like the report of the weather. If the weatherman uh, tells us the, the weather forecast for tomorrow, we could call it a testimony, but it's, it's, it's as if we overstate a little bit if we use that term, if we use bearing witness or testimony in that case. And that, that's why I thought, well, if you want to understand testimony, you also have to take uh, uh, care of exactly what are we uh, bearing witness to. Um, and and then, then there is something particular happening, even if you look um, at the philosophy of history, uh, the history of philosophy. In the history of philosophy, especially thanks to the works of Augustine and the Christian tradition that developed, you see that there is a certain emphasis on very peculiar things uh, uh, of which you can be a witness that they think is worthwhile addressing, namely the idea of the miracle. Um, but I think that it's not only about the miracle, but we also have a kind of a mirror image. A miracle is usually something nice and and, and happy, let's say, that, that helps our existence towards a better um, uh, towards a better vision or to improvement of existence. But on the downside of existence, we also have something. And there you get, rather than the miracle, you have the catastrophe. Um, And uh, when it comes to the uh, testimony of catastrophes, we see that especially in 20th century literature, um, um, there is a lot of uh, things available. Um, um, And there, I think, you get to testimony in a very specific sense. So I think that, that a sense of testimony is always colored by the intensity of the experience that you undergo. And there are different words for that, uh, of course. And and so, of course, you have a different experience when you experience a miracle uh, than than when you experience a catastrophe. But both indicate that something fundamental happened in your life and fundamental happened in your experience of the world 
that needs to be told to other people. And then I think you really have uh, a sense of testimony that is strong enough uh, to be and uh, to, to deserve to be called uh, testimony and bearing witness. Yeah, I like that you you've said bearing witness so many times. That was something I, I noticed, um, and we can talk. We'll talk about this definitely later. Um, but the 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 idea that it's something you bear, that it's it's something that's it's heavy. It's it has an ethical call um, inherent yes. in it. Um, so I think I think the best way to continue this is to go through these four basic elements, um, which you identify as the reserve slash object, subject, act, and hearer. Um, can you explicate this and talk about how these different elements interact and how why this definition of testimony is so um, is what you identify as correct? Um, and I'm also. I was also very interested in how you break up the, I guess, how you align each element with a different, I don't know, a philosophical orientation. So we have ontology, logic, epistemology, and then ethics. Um, so, yes, so if you could yes. do that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so one of the reasons why I thought it was necessary to, to distinguish these elements and to say something about uh, a testimony in these terms is because I noticed that in the, in the literature, people usually tend to start with the epistemological issue. But when you look at the epistemological issue, you're already at the end, let's say, of the problem of testimony. Because what is the epistemological um, issue in testimony that's basically somebody says that they are a witness, they tell you um, uh, their testimony, and they ask you to believe them. And then the I position that I, uh, that I use in this explanation is the I of the listener, the one who receives testimony. And of course, the one who receives testimony has a particular problem. Because the one who received, for instance, if you're dealing with, with an eyewitness, as somebody was a witness of an accident, let's say, just let's take a very simple example. Um, the one who receives testimony was not him or herself a witness. Uh, that means they don't know whether what the witness tells is actually right or wrong. And so uh, the, the, the receiver of testimony runs the risk of hearing something that might be untrue. Perhaps the witness tries to deceive them, or perhaps the witness doesn't have a proper memory of what happened. And so and then all of a sudden you get all kinds of epistemological questions. Can I find some reasons, can I give some reasons why I should deserve, uh, why this, this witness deserves to be trusted? Uh, why I should take his testimony or her testimony seriously, yes or no? So that kind of questions open up, and there's a lot of literature on that type of questions. But for me, it seems that if you deal um, with the question of testimony from that angle, you forget a lot of things. <laughs> you forget first, uh, you forget the fact that there is a witness. First, you forget that this witness, before the witness can bear witness, before the witness can tell a story to someone else, this witness first must have, must have experienced something. So that means that, the, 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 let's say, the first root of testimony is something ontological, namely uh, the encounter of the witness with reality. Yeah? And it can be something very simple, uh, like, an, um, like being a witness of a car accident. But if you think about that, you also immediately see that there's something peculiar happening in this being a witness, because the witness is not like a camera. The witness is not somebody who nicely observes or records what is happening. If you are a witness of an accident, you all of a sudden, perhaps you feel threatened. Perhaps you will be, you yourself will become a victim or you see the victims of the accident. And the first thing that you think of is, should I not help them? And should I not try to take care of them? And so you see that your experience of such an accident is already very much colored by the context of what happens. So being a witness is really an encounter with uh, reality. Uh, and to experience uh, something as a witness is not being a neutral observer of something. No, you're engaged somehow in what happens. And because you are engaged, you will see certain aspects and you might also not see other aspects. 
And that's why um, when it comes to this first element that you um, mentioned, uh, so that, that I describe in terms of the reserve object, why do I speak of the reserve object? Well, because the witness, when they tell something about what they experienced or have seen or so, they are capable of pinpointing some aspects of it and present that in their testimony. So it becomes an object for those who receive testimony. But there's always, always something like a reserve. There's something that is withdrawn from the grasp of the witness. And of course, it's also withdrawn from the grasp um, of the one who uh, who is addressed by the witness. And so you see that there is a that there is a problem there, and I think that um, this problem, um, the, the, so there is a kind of a, a duality or a, an ambivalence, let's say, in what you experience at a witness. Part of it is accessible to you, uh, and part of it is withdrawn from you. And this problem, uh, and then if, if we then zoom, move a little bit from this reserve object to the witness, we see that this problem in a certain sense repeats itself in the witness. Uh, why? Because it, it is well known that, that witnesses, um, not all witnesses, can speak about what they witnessed. And so there are occurrences in the life of human beings that are traumatic. And if they are traumatic, it can mean that you suppress them. And if you suppress them, of course, you will not be able to tell about them. And that, I think, is a very interesting, that is a very interesting aspect. So on the one hand, um, well, let's put it in this way. A witness can be drawn so much in what they experienced, uh, for instance, in a trauma, that they are no longer capable of talking about that, which also means that... Um, um, that in the act of testimony, not everything is said that perhaps needs to be said about uh, about that which a witness experienced and and testified. And so, so you see that it becomes a very complicated, complicated phenomenon. You could also say it a little bit in um, in, in 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 the terms of the difference between private and public. What a witness experiences is not publicly available. So there is, in certain sense, the witness has a certain private encounter, if you like, with reality. Of course, there can be more than one witness, but then still it's a private encounter. And to testify or to bear witness or testimony is a way of making that ex private experience public. And so the act of testimony is all about the question whether something like that is possible. And what happens, and what you might lose when you try to make it uh, make it public. And so you see that that, that these or each of these elements deserve to be um, deserve to be uh, discussed and deserve to be uh, distinguished. Uh, and and then I think you get a much more rich or much more complicated uh, picture. And I think that, that then subsequently, of course, you can zoom in to all these elements and and try to say a little bit more about that. So that, that's, that's a little bit about these elements. And then about the, the other uh, part of the question um, uh, that, you, that you raised, um, uh, that I also make a distinction between ontology, epistemology, ethics, and so on. The reason why I do that is, again, a little bit in light of, um, of what is available in the literature, namely that people tend to approach testimony as mainly or only an epistemological problem. Of course, there is an epistemological question, as I explained. The hearer of and the receiver of testimony wants in some way or another be able uh, to know a little bit better whether they can trust a testimony, whether they can trust and accept the testimony of a witness. But there are also other aspects. Eh? So I already talked about um, the experience a witness undergoes, which is really uh, an, an encounter with reality. It is in that sense ontological. But there's also, and, and this is, there's also an ethical um, aspect at stake. So I think that um, a witness starts bearing witness because he or she feels a certain demand that that which he or she experienced really needs to be said because it is of social significance and not only because it because if it would be only of private significance why would the witness speak about it no it's of social significance it's important 
that the rest of the world comes to know it. And, 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 and one of the, the, the ways in which I uh, uh, try to uh, understand that, that apparently that uh, which the witness speaks about suffers from what I call a kind of a phenomenological poverty. Uh, usually uh, things appear out, them, out of themselves, they show themselves to the world, but the things there that, that the witness experience, they suffer from a phenomenological poverty. They can't show themselves socially, publicly, out of themselves. So they need the words of the witness to be able to be seen, uh, to be able to appear socially or publicly so that people uh, can relate uh, to it. And the important, of course, you can give examples. So you can give the example um, of a court case in which uh, a testimony is very important to arrive at the truth. And then you could say one of the imperatives that a witness feels is he or she thinks that they need to share what they saw uh, because it helps the, the, the judge to come to a better judgment, uh, for instance. Uh, so this is a very simple example. But I think that much more important uh, circumstances uh, and, and, and stories can uh, can be told. Uh, for instance, when it comes to the uh, the testimonies of all kinds of victims, victims of all kinds of atrocities, forms of violence, and so on. Why do these testimonies be told? Because I can imagine that many victims don't even want to talk about it. But why is it necessary that it is told? Why do they feel this imperative? Well, because this, a society needs to see it. They need to see what type of injustice has been done um, so that they can hopefully <laughs> respond to it and try to change perhaps uh, uh, the structures in a society. And I think that th this ethical dimension, this ethical dimension um, uh, is also sometimes, I think, um, uh, is not fully treated and brought into view because it's also an ethical dimension of the witness, I would say, and, and not only of the ones who receive uh, testimony, but it's also about the witness uh, feeling themselves responsible for what they experienced and, and, and thinking that a society or a social environment needs to know about it. Yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Thank you for that robust answer. That was great. Um, and I, you brought out two things that I, I think I want to start drifting towards, though I have one other question before, um, which is that um, it's fundamentally a part of language. Um, like testimony happens within language as well as our experience. You, you quote um, the philosopher Heidegger multiple times when he, he says, um, I think in the letter on humanism that, language is the house of being. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that when we, and when we testify or when we bear witness, we're doing it through language. And then you bring up um, all of these splits um, and the doublings that occur within testimony um, that between public mm -hmm. and private or the divine and the common or um, under like private as an, as a language of my own and the need to share it with others. Um, and I wonder if that, if these questions are what enable you to move towards the continental tradition, um, and I'm sure you know you, if you studied continental philosophy, surely there's, um, or that's why you do a, a book about continental philosophy and testimony. But you talk in the in this chapter about why you chose continental or why continental philosophy does something more than. Um, 
you know, present day analytic thought as well as um, critical race theory and feminism, not that those don't have anything to add, um, but can you give a, a, a little overview of what continental philosophy and its, its projects as well as how it's instantiated in the thinkers you are thinking with, how does it add a much more robust and perhaps literary philosoph- philosophical testimony to testimony? Yeah. 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 So I think that, so, so I've already said a little bit about the, the analytic epistemology of testimony uh, that I think that that they are doing, of course, a lot of good work, but they tend to um, emphasize strongly the epistemological side. And I think that, I think also when it comes to um, um, uh, especially the account, there's a lot of a lot of work also in feminist philosophy on testimony, which is also excellent and very important. Um, but it also has a tendency to emphasize very strongly the ethical side. And, and what I see disappearing in that. Uh, framework is what what I would call the ontological dimension, and and that I think has something to do in exactly with uh, the quote of Heidegger that you just mentioned, and namely that uh, that there is when we talk about ontology, uh, the, the term itself combines on the one hand being or reality, and on the other hand logos, let's say language, and so so this interaction of being and language, um, that language does something to our experience but that language is also the way in which we can re- relate to reality in the first place, shows that uh, that testimony and that the importance of testimony goes beyond the questions of epistemology, but also beyond the very, of course, very important uh, questions of the testimony of victims. But it is something, somehow it is embedded um, in our own uh, Form of being. We are. I, I would even. There is. There is a very nice uh, a quote by by Heidegger, which I, I really like. At a certain moment, I think he's quoting Hölderlin at that at that point. He is he's arguing that the human being is a witness of being, and so 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 the 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 Zeuge der science in, in German. So he's a, he's a witness of being. This means that apparently being a witness determines who we are. And then, and I think being a witness then does not only mean that we experience um, uh, being, that we all have all kinds of experience, but also that we talk about it, that we find the linguistic means uh, to give, to articulate uh, our own experience. And when you think about that, and then I I think I I also come to that, 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 that third ingredient of your question, that also brings us to literary considerations. Because uh, the idea, for instance, that we can only express or articulate our experiences with reality in terms of a kind of a scientific, neutral, objective language is, of course, ridiculous. Uh, Look at human culture. We find so many ways of expressing um, how we experience reality, poetry, literature, and so on. And and this is an integral part, I would say, of what bearing witness is. And, and, And of course... As soon as you say that, you also get into trouble because then, then you also have to say something about, yeah, but, but then how does testimony, which usually is understood as a direct experience of reality, which you have to formulate as precise as possible, how does that then relate to literary qualities of our language? Because a literary quality also means that you compose something. But if you compose something aren't you then adding something with your imagination or so? And then you have a problem because then it seems as if the reality that you wanted to articulate escapes again uh, from you. But I think that we have to face up to that problem philosophically and that we only then, if we do that, we get a good sense of what testimony is. And testimony, therefore, therefore I like also this, uh, um, uh, this word bearing witness because there's the word witnessing or the, or the, or the double meaning of the word witnessing eh, on the one hand of being the one who experienced something and on the other hand being the one who talks about it and makes it in that sense public um, and, and allows it to enter the social sphere. And these two aspects of witnessing, they cannot always be reconciled. And that is, that is I would say, the problem of being um, of being a witness. And I think that 
um, uh, literary language really helps us exploring uh, exploring that uh, much more than um, than a kind of uh, uh, scientific objective um, uh, language uh, that that because we when when we speak scientifically or objectively about something we tend to forget that we also lose something in that way of speaking. <laughs> and, 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 and we, we, we have the imagination or the fantasy that in that objective scientific speech, we actually uh, uh, encounter reality as it truly is. But that's not the case. In that sense, literary articulations of human encounters with reality or with each other or so uh, might be uh, much better, um, uh, much better saying uh, what we have experienced uh, than scientific language. Yeah. yeah, that reminds me of um, my. I had a professor in undergrad who used to always say that literature is not an epiphenomenon of life. It's not something that just tacks onto the top of it. Um, which I, I mean, I've if in Heidegger on his um, when he's reading Hölderlin, he talks about how. Poetry is what makes language possible. It's not language that makes poetry possible. And I think those two ideas really give weight to the idea that literature is, in some sense, a way to see like maybe a pure, I don't want to trouble that term, but a really um, central or fundamental or primordial act of testimony or witnessing. Um, and I think now I, I would love to turn to the literature. And I think something that literature for me that it does is it it lends a voice to someone who doesn't exist. And uh -huh. I, I think lending a voice is a way we can think about um, testimony. And your book is titled The Voice of Misery, but um, there's something interesting in that, in that there's not one voice, there are always multiple voices. Uh -huh. yes. Um, yes. And I wonder if you could talk about, um, so you have a great chapter on, um, Gaetan Susi's, uh, the girl who, or the little girl who was too fond of matches. Um, and I, if we could talk about that in relation to the idea of the articulate and inarticulate voice, um, and how we think about, um, the split subject of a testimony. Yes. Um, yes. Well, well yes. Uh, well, th thank you for that question, because this is a very nice example. So this book of Susi, um, I think I read it, but it must be more than a decade ago. And when I first read it, I thought something is happening here, and, and, and but I don't know what it is. <laughs> and so I had, I needed lots and lots of time to digest uh, the story. But I think it's a, it's it's it is for me one of the uh, the guiding literary examples that allow me to think uh, to think testimony. And so in this in this story, and now there will be spoilers for those who <laughs> did not yet read the book. They should now <laughs> stop listening because. Uh, it, it's also the, the way in which the story unfolds. It's also like a mystery unpacking itself. So it's 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 uh, you should not listen to the to the spoilers in that sense. But it's of course the, what what is happening. I would say in that book. So so he's playing with the figure of a twin. Yeah? So Alice uh, has a twin sister. We don't know that in the beginning of the story. And Alice is the one who speaks. And Alice is also the one who is capable of, of, of who really has, a, has a, a proper capacity of language. And, and then that's, that, that is demonstrated throughout the book. And she, she also talks about her own special relationship with language and, and, and how she uses the words of famous authors um, to express herself. And that is what you could say, that is the articulate side of the twin. But she has a twin sister and this twin sister suffered um, uh, something terrible. She was burned, um, and she cannot speak. Uh, she is alive, but it's it's almost a type of life that can hardly be called human life anymore. Uh, so it's let's say it's on the, it's on the brink of life and death, and 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 this 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 person still um, makes some sounds, um, but there is nothing articulate uh, in that uh, in that sound. Nothing that we can. Um, learn from it. It's so. It's it's in that sense. It is um, it is a voice of misery, but not a voice in the sense of a meaningful voice. It's based more like a noise, <laughs> a noise of misery. And it is the the story that is told that really grants a voice to that misery. 
And of course, as soon as you uh, tell the story, as soon as Alice tells the story of herself, but also of her uh, twin sister, of course, um, the experience, the actual experience of the twin sister is also kept in reserve. It's also withdrawn uh, from us in a certain sense. And yet we get a sense of it. And so there I would say it really is the split, uh, the split character of, and I think, it, it, of course, it's an extreme case, but it's the split character of, on the one hand, the full witness, the twin sister of, uh, of Alice, and on the other hand, the one who speaks, uh, who's doing the actual testimony, the actual act of language, the artic- who offers an articulate for it. Of course, they belong together. They're twins, yeah? so they are more or less each other's mirror image or something like that. Um, but at the same time, it shows the complexity yeah, of, this, uh, of this notion of, uh, of witness and the, the split dimension of, this, uh, of the subject that we encounter. So we don't encounter, indeed, we don't encounter one voice. We encounter a noise and a voice, if you like to say, or an inarticulate voice and an articulate voice. And they belong together. They together form the full uh, phenomenon, let's say, of testimony. Um, and one can't deal without each other, without the other. Um, but it also means that the articulate voice refers to something that it cannot fully um, embrace or articulate. And, so, and that makes it a very interesting um, uh, 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 structure i would say yeah and susie does that matter. yeah and the idea that there's <laughs> the the idea that there's something um there's someone or something or some event beyond language um or something about testifying that um that can't be brought into the fold of universality is something you bring up with an incredible um com- uh, exegesis of Fear and Trembling by Kierkegaard. Um, I I love this chapter. I This is one of my favorite books. It actually was one of the first books I read in undergrad mm-hmm. when I was like, oh, I think I'm going to study literature. Um, and I'm, could you give us a brief overview of the story of Abraham and what you're trying to bring out in this difference between how Abraham relates to the voice of God and his command that he's given, the demand that yeah. he's given. And Johannes de Silentio, who is the narrator of the story and is not Kierkegaard, how he relates us to that story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the, 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 so the, the, I, I think that's for me, so the, just the, the two figures with which you start uh, Abraham and Johannes de Silentio for me in, of course, in a completely different setting, um, this repeats the structure of this twin that we encountered in in the story of Susie. Um, uh, but in this case, of course, it's uh, Abraham is not well. Perhaps he is the victim of a disaster, but in a completely different sense, let's say. Um, but 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 what you see is that uh, in this story, of course, Abraham has to um, has to uh, sacrifice uh, his son Isaac. That is asked uh, from his God, but it's the same God that promised Abraham to have uh, a, a huge, uh, um, um, how do you say that, spin-off, uh, lots of children coming after after him. Um, but he has only one son. So I mean, many des- he would have many descendants. He's promised many descendants, but he has only one son. He's old. His wife is also old, they cannot have other children. So the God that promises him many descendants is the same God that now says, well, you have to kill your son, which means he will have no descendants. So, so, so you enter in a paradox. And so that's, that's the absurd situation in which Abraham finds himself. And the only way, of course, that's the whole logic of the story. The only way in which Abraham um, can deal with it is if he believes by power of the absurd. And so that means, what is the absurd here? Well, if I kill my son, he will still be returned to me. So that, that, I mean, and that, so that, that's the absurd that Abraham has to accept in order to be dealing with this God. And then, of course, you get here, you get, of course, in a very strong sense, the difference between private and public, let's say, but then in ethical terms. Uh, the public, the normal ethical norms say you cannot kill. Abraham, of course, is compelled to kill his son. But then, of course, if he does that, 
he follows a, a divine order, a divine order which is not accessible for the others. And this is this puts Abraham in a particular problematic spot, namely he cannot communicate. So he is the, the knight of faith, but because he is the knight of faith, he cannot communicate about what he is ordered to do. Yeah, because if he would communicate, he would make it universal, he would make it social, and he would make it public. Um, and so, so, so you have you have there this 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 instance of Abraham. Everybody around Abraham will condemn him as a murderer, uh, and Abraham himself cannot defend himself because he would not be able to to speak about it. And so this is basically the 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 the, the, the scenery in which we find ourselves, uh, the, the, how it is staged by by Kierkegaard, and then. Um, the figure of Johannes de Silencio is brought in. And, and, and for me, what I tried to do in this chapter is really um, to show what happens if you look at this chapter through the eyes of the idea that Johannes de Silencio is here basically um, the witness, the one who speaks, who somehow complements or supplements the real witness, Abraham, who cannot speak about um, about uh, the divine order that uh, that he has to carry out, um, and then of course what you see is that exactly the the, the figure of uh, Johannes de Silencio becomes the figure that somehow starts mediating between on the on the on the one hand this purely private experience of Abrahamic faith, and on the other hand uh, the public realm of the ethical that condemns um, Abraham as um, as a murderer. And it, it, it's what, what, what I also like in the, in the story. And, and, and for me, when I read it and, and started to become aware of it, I was actually a little bit confused because I always thought Kierkegaard is the author of existentialism. And if you're an existentialist, then you have to speak about your own experiences and you have to say something about what you fundamentally experience yourself and your own existence. But by taking Johannes de Silencio as the narrator and describing him um, as a poet, he says, well, actually, Johannes de Silencio does not tell anything about his own experiences. He is fully in the service of telling us something about the secret that is Abraham's existence, which is, of course, not his own existence. So you see that, that there, the, 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 the figure of the narrator, the one who bears uh, witness cannot bear witness to something that he fully experienced himself because if Johannes de Silencio would also have experienced the same type of ordeal as Abraham has, there would be nothing uh, to say. And so you see that, 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 that Kierkegaard is trying to find a kind of a middle term um, that allows the secret of Abraham to be brought to light, but as secret, that is to say he's not... He's not uh, giving up the secret. He's not making it all of a sudden accessible, but he's trying to show the secret as secret and tries to show why the inaccessible is inaccessible. Um, and because of that, he actually does articulate something of that secret in a public language. And, and, and that, I think, is a very intriguing and highly subtle um, uh, description of uh, of fear and trembling, which of course is for many reasons an extremely important uh, text, but I think also from the perspective of what happens when you look at it uh, through the uh, from the perspective of of testimony and witnessing, there's a, there's something peculiar happening there. Yeah, yeah, and you you talk about Johannes de Silentio as he as a poet, and um, you write that. Um, I know, like the to doing doing something to language, um, and pointing out um, pointing out the inaccessible within the accessible, the aporia surrounded by whatever you can know. Um, that might be the basic task of all poetic language, and you yes. you talk about um, uh, Lyotard, and um, he he seconds you write he seconds Derrida and Deleuze's description of the task of poetics to invent idioms, quote, what is at stake in a literature, in a philosophy, in a politics, perhaps, is to bear witness to difference by finding idioms for them. And I think this is something that's so central to your investigation. And I'm, I think I was really appreciative of it in the sense that 
poetry is trying to find the words for something that there are no words for mm-hmm. um, and to try to give form to something that can't have form. Um, and I, the, the I, Abraham's dilemma is a perfect representation of that. And I think what Johannes de Silencio and Kierkegaard are bringing out is that tension of like, I have to say something. Um, and I want to ask you about the demand and how, how you're conceiving of the demand to speak when nothing can be spoken. Yes, yeah, so so th- this of course th- th- this is a very uh, complicated issue. Also, I would say this uh, this particular structure um, of the demand. And so one of the um, one of the things that 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 one of the quote there's a quote by Franz Kafka which I really like, and he is he's using an image of two hands, and he says somebody who is um, uh, witnessing something. Um, if if he's fortunate, he can use one hand to ward off the catastrophe in this, because that's in the case in, in Kafka's case, can use one hand to ward off the catastrophe and its impact that it has on his or her life and can use the second hand to speak about it. And here you see already very nicely the split dimension. So you have one hand to ward off, let's say the figure of Abraham or Alice's twin sister, and the second hand, the free hand, that you have free to tell something about it. Uh, Johannes de Silencio, the narrator. But it can also be the case that some people suffer something for which they need both hands to ward it off. And then they don't have a free hand uh, to speak about it. And I think that, 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 that the, the, the fragili- there's a certain fragility uh, to, uh, to testimony. Um, and, and I think that Kafka's image perfectly captures that because he says also this. He says some people don't have this second hand free because they need so much energy. They need all their strength they have to survive uh, and to ward off the impact of the trauma or the catastrophe that it had um, on their lives. I think that this fragility also shows us a little bit um, the importance um, of what is at stake in the in the demand. Now, on the one hand, you see that in this um, um, in this experience, something happens to a human life that is so huge that it can overwhelm uh, this human being. But at the same time, it is something private, so it's not so easily visible for others. Yeah? So there is others who might see it; they might see something completely different, and that that I like in the in the figure of uh, of fear and trembling, I don't, that doesn't come out as good, I think, in the in the story of Susi, but it comes out perfectly in fear and trembling. Namely, Abraham experiences something; he, he goes through a certain existential ordeal. But the ones who are not Abraham and look at him, they only see a murderer, and because of that, they completely miss what all the energy that Abraham has to put into what Kierkegaard calls faith. Um, and I think that because of that, there is a certain demand because the phenomenon is, from the public point of view, completely misjudged. And this, of course, is also what Kierkegaard is trying to do in his, uh, in his, account, of, his, his account of faith. He's, he's, he's arguing against the Hegelians of his time. You think that you can have a concept of faith. You think you can understand faith. Well, let me show you something. And, 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 and so there is... Um, a demand, I think, both towards uh, Abraham as the one who experiences something about which he cannot speak, as a demand coming from the social condemnation um, of what this individual undergoes. And so there is, a, I think that, that in that sense, there is a double demand that a witness who starts speaking experiences. It has to be said because... Um, something is experienced that is actually a, a dimension, a fundamental dimension of human life, uh, but that somehow humans tend not to see or tend to misunderstand. They don't understand the impact um, that it has had yeah. on, in this case, Abraham. And so there is a demand coming up. And then I think, so So I'm, I'm a bit, I, I did not um, um, use too much terms like justice and so on, but basically this demand is about justice. And so, and I think that this is also in um, in uh, Johannes de Silencio's case really the case. The demand stems from the fact that the phenomenon of faith has to be done justice uh, in an environment that thinks that they can understand faith or that thinks that they can ethically 
um, uh, say that um, uh, Abraham is nothing but a murderer. And this is a complete misunderstanding. So that means also that in testimony, we want to bring something to light that is somehow inaccessible and somehow foreign, really foreign to what people usually have experienced. And this foreignness, this alterity or this difference, mm-hmm. whatever, I mean, you can use all the, co- the concepts from continental philosophy that you like. Um, this has to be articulated and has to be brought to the fore. And I think that's uh, an, an author, that, that is, of course, why I think this, this story of, of um, Kierkegaard is so important. He shows what kind of literary form you could use to make something like that visible without betraying uh, betraying the private nature without betraying the faith that is some somehow is something unarticulable uh, you cannot really put it into words and so and, and there I think is is uh, is both the demands the fragility and the specific task of uh, um, of uh, of testimony and then also uh, just to just to to to, to tie up, uh, to tie in with with what you said I mean this definitely I would say shows the importance of poetics. Why? Because poetics is creative. It finds new ways of speaking. It doesn't have a pre-given form. No, it can explore and invent new forms. It can explore and invent new idioms by which a phenomenon that humans have not yet encountered in existence all of a sudden can also be somehow, at least a little bit, <laughs> be uh, appear appear in language and in the in the way we, in which we articulate it. So, so the, I think that this demand, the fragility, and the poetic dimension of language really belong together in this uh, in this in structure of testimony. Yeah. While we're on the subject of, I, I think of a of faith or belief. Um, in and it's kind of its tension with the public or the ethical um, or the universal. I want to ask you about the relationship that you see between testimony and prayer or oike. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think it was it's so interesting in that um, yeah. you like in the realm of a lot of uh, a genealogy of continental philosophy. I'm thinking of Venehamacha when he writes about that that philology is not logos apophantikos. It's not subject to truth or false. Um, I wonder if you could bring out how testimony is related to oike and the prayer and something that exceeds yeah. the boundaries of what can be proven, yeah. um, especially yeah. in the sense that, you know, um, I, I was looking this up last night uh, in German, like Zeugen, the, it, it refers to the etymology of witness, Zeugen, is, um, or testimony, or however you want to translate it, is it comes from Zeug, which is thing, and it's the thing you would need to prove mm-hmm. something's true. So I think the idea of proof and how that relates to prayer in the testimony, yeah. I would I would love to hear some more thoughts on that. As yes, yes. In your book. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think this is a very important uh, uh, connection, and, and one of the reasons... Um, I'm, I'm bringing in this connection between uh, this, this prayer to the gods, let's say, and testimony, is uh, because because I think that in in the case of prayer, you phenomenologically it's a bit more pure. Testimony is a very complicated complicated mode of speech because, of course, I, I think that that if you would would ask um, the one who hears testimony. What is mo- of most interest for the, for this person is whether or not the witness speaks the truth. Yeah. So, so the question of whether it is actually a speech that is true, yes or no, is of the fir- that it seems the most natural thing to be worried about. But I think that that if you look more closely at what testimony is, it has different aspects. It is much more complicated. Um, for instance, and, and and I do think that there is a sense of prayer in um, in a testament, and, and I think that you can can point it out in in very basic um, uh, basic aspects of testimony. Yeah, this, uh, and I think that people like Derrida and Ricoeur have analyzed this already perfectly. But but if somebody speaks, bears witness, and speaks to somebody, they are implicitly always saying, "You have to believe me." And they make a plea. 
they do an appeal on the one who listens. Please believe me because I have something important to say to you. And this, this idea of please believe me, if you, would, if you phrase it in that way, that is a kind of a prayer. Yeah? So in the, way, in the same way as you can pray um, uh, to the God. So that's, that's, a, that's a specific type of linguist, uh, linguistic use or use of language that cannot be reduced to the question of whether the testimony is true or false. Or something else happens. A testimony is not just a representation of the world in a kind of a proposition. No, something happens between the witness and the receiver of uh, testimony. And, some, and, and there is an appeal, there is a plea, there is a question to be believed. And the witness also says, well, you know, um, you have to believe me. Why? Because I was there. So, so he's also positing, the witness is also positing him or herself as a witness, as somebody who deserves to be trusted. So you see that a very complex um, performance almost is taking place in um, in testimony. And I think that that dimension um, of, um, of the, the testimonial uh, st- uh, staging, let's say, uh, can easily be forgotten if you only are considered um, with the content of a testimony in the sense of what is actually being said here about reality. Can I see it as a representation or a proposition of reality? And there's a very interesting uh, comment, again, um, from Heidegger in his reading of Hölderlin. Um, somehow that's now in my mind, so I have to think, <laughs> think about it. But he says, he speaks also about prayer there, and he says one of the things that you can always do is you can always reduce a prayer to its content or to a description. You can say, look, the man was praying. This is what Heidegger says. The man was praying, and this and this were the contents of his prayer. Uh, So now I have told you what praying is. No, because you're not completely not in the constellation of the individual praying to to their gods and so on. And and, and similarly, you you could, of course, reduce... A testimony by saying oh, this was the witness, this was the one who listened to the witness, and these were the contents of the testimony. But then you have uh, somehow abstracted yourself from the tensions, from the appeal of the witness to the to the to the listener. Please believe me. Please listen to me, uh, and so on. So that type of reductions they come naturally to us, but they are dangerous because we lose the real phenomenon out of sight. And that I think that's that's why um, I, I like this 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 uh, this connection to this phenomenon of of prayer. Yeah, so and, um, you could also another aspect um, of which I did not yet mention, but which is also there in every testimony, is the idea of a promise or of an oath or of swearing to speak the truth. Yeah, the testimony. If you're in a court case, you have to swear to speak the truth, but implicitly you're always making that promise. If you're posing, positing yourself as a witness and you say, I was there, I saw something and I will tell you, then you're implicitly promising the other one to tell the truth. And the promise structure is also, of course, not a logos apophantikos. It's not a proposition that is true or false, but it's it's a different type of linguistic act. And and one of the things that I wanted to bring out is that when you look at testimony, it's actually a very complicated linguistic phenomenon that that brings so many ingredients uh, together. And at the same time, it's one of the most everyday things because we're always uh, uh, listening to what others tell us about their experiences that we had not, to which we have no access and so on. So that, 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 that intrigues me in this phenomenon. Yeah. You were speaking earlier about the strangeness that's inher- that that comes with testimony and and bearing witness to reality, and I think that is that's brought up in in your last chapter, which is not a conclusion; it's in lieu of a conclusion, um, which is on um, I and people who have listened to several of my podcasts have might know Paul Celan, who is one of my favorite poets, um, and I think I want to. I'd like to talk about Paul Ceylon just constantly with people. Um, but he talks about um, das Fremde, the, the strange, or the foreign, or der andere. Um, can you talk about how the strange um, is, a, is a 
part of the testimony and a part of perhaps bearing witness to reality through language and how that comes out peculiarly in poetry, um, which is, you write, poetry is testimony. Um, it addresses reality and, and it makes it strange in order to bring it close, in order to give it something beyond truth, something that goes beyond whether or not it's it's something that has an epistemological truth value. It just is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, for me, it was very important to end the book with with literature, uh, or and and then preferably even with with poetry, because of course the examples that I discuss in the first part they're quite narrative, and of course when you encounter the poetry of Paul Salon, you encounter something. That, that yeah, you could wonder. I mean, can this still be called testimony because there's no narration going on? And, uh, and so, so what what exactly um, is happening here? But I, I do think that that's exactly why I wanted to conclude the book with with especially Paul Salon's poetry because this is also a literary form in which a per- particular experience is somehow borne witness to. Um, and I think that the, uh, it has everything to do, I would say, with this foreign, das Fremde, the foreign um, at stake. And, and what I like in um, in Salon is that um, he he is not an um, uh, he has a very complex perspective in a certain sense of das Fremde or of, of the strange or of the foreign. Um, especially for me, it, it was also very clearly visible in this famous uh, speech of him, the Meridian. And there, there he starts making a distinction mm-hmm. between two kinds of of foreign. And, and so, on the one hand, the encounter with the foreign can be petrifying. It, it really can kill you. So he's using this figure of the Medusa head. It can it can petrify you, turn you into stone. On the other hand. Perhaps uh, that is the that is his big perhaps and his who knows and uh, really it's vielleicht wer weiß and so he's continuously bringing that up uh, especially in this Meridian speech he says but perhaps there is also another type of relation to the foreign possible and I think that 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 other relation is what he calls an encounter uh, an encounter with the other an encounter with the foreign and that is an encounter that somehow has to take place. Um, with the means of, in the form of poetry, and that that is what he's trying, what he's trying to do. And of course, in the in the case of Solon, this is this is uh, quite something because he is making, he's writing his poetry in German. Uh, this is and this for him is the language of death. Uh, the, let's face it, this is the language of death. So you see what he has to do in his poetry. So that is, he is also describing that in some of his poems that slate by slate. He has to tear down the roof of language because this language somehow um, obstructs him going outside. But this is what he's doing in his German poetry. And so, so, the, so the language doesn't need to remain the language of death. Poetry is a kind of a reworking of language, an invention of new idioms in the language of death that somehow bear witness to life, that somehow bear witness, I would say, to this encounter with the other. And and, and, and Salon's poetry is very complicated, but it's also very powerful because he's doing that in this very, as, as Gadamer puts it, in this very subdued way. It, it's very leise, as, as, uh, as, 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 as Gadamer says. It's a very subdued way. You hardly notice what, what, what exactly is now being said. And, but there it happens. There the first, uh, let's say, the first um, um, words of this new idiom are being found, and and and, and I think that 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 Salon is really um, working with that moment of of this inception of of language that was death, but is somehow being brought to life by finding new ways of speaking, and and that I think is definitely the poetic nature of uh, of testament, the poetic nature that that allows us not to repeat ourselves, but to say something fundamentally new, because there is a fundamental new experience either with a language that has turned death or there's a fundamental new experience with something in reality that you want to bring out uh, and so on. And, and I think that Slan's poetry is doing that in a, in a magnificent uh, way. Yeah. yeah, and I think exactly what you were talking about earlier in the book and, and 
just now with the the creation of a new idiom or the the making strange of language, which kind of posits the reader or the narrator or the speaker as at some kind of a threshold where, I don't know, my experiences with, with reading Ceylon sometimes are, this is, I can read this, this is in the universal in that sense, but I have no idea what it means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it puts you at that threshold, yes, which is, yes. I mean, you talk about threshold so much, it's, yeah. that's where the testimony happens. Yeah, you could, you could say that that, 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 that that he really reaches reaches the threshold between the articulate and the inarticulate voice. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what makes it so important yeah? because he sees that you, you can see that something of language is still happening there. And that is, uh, uh, that I think is crucial for, for his poetry. And, and exactly against the background of how I started uh, with the stories of Susi uh, and, uh, and some, some others, uh, I think this was, was the, the, the right way <laughs> to, uh, to conclude the book uh, with, with, with an author who is really going to this threshold between the articulate and the inarticulate voice. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful ending. Um, well, I have one final question, which is, what are you thinking about now? What is what's in the pipeline, or if there's nothing in the pipeline yet, you know, what what's on your mind um, as we as we continue forward? Yeah. Well, as you perhaps noticed, I'm not really done yet with <laughs> with this issue of testimony, <laughs> and I I think that um, uh, one of the things that um, um, that I'm working on now. Is to is to dive a little bit uh, more into the history of philosophy, also to see um, uh, what different forms of testimony you have, and I think what still needs to be done much more than I've done uh, at the moment in the book is to flesh out these four elements. Yeah, so it's it's when I look back on it because now it's it's been a while again. Uh, when I when I wrote the last letter of the of the book, but then I yeah I noticed that some of the things are still a bit too tentative and they can be more clear. So I, I'm working on that. I'm elaborating um, on that. And what I also wanted to do um, is systematize um, better this interaction between uh, testimony and literature. Of course, I'm playing a lot with it uh, by giving using literature by ending with Salon. But I'm not really giving a philosophical account of how that works. Yeah? So, I've, so in, in a certain sense, um, I've understood that, that the relation between literature and testimony is important. And I can show that by giving some examples that it's important. But I've not yet understood it. And so that's, that's what I'm working on now. Yeah. Well, that sounds excellent. And I will be excited to read that when it comes out. Um, and hopefully we can have you back on the show and continue this conversation. I'd be happy to. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, thank you for speaking with us um, or speaking with me, giving a testimony of your book on testimonies. Um, And I can give my testimony. It was a great, it was great to read. um, And it was great to speak with you and to learn more about your book. Um, Once again, that was Getian van der Hayden. Um, speaking about his book, The Voice of Misery, out from SUNY Press. Thank you, Getian, for being with me today. And thank you, listeners. Um, until next time. Mm-hmm.